Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, and you can be angry later. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about travelling forwards and backwards, but always into trouble. Whether you are discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your Chenchu from your Shang Tu, then you're extremely welcome on this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's an episode that has a metaphorical element to its title, as Marco finds himself caught between the dishonesty of our heroes and our villain. It is also the earliest episode for which we have neither off-screen images nor moving pictures, and so no visual representation of what went on on screen at all. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, The Wall of Lies, or you say TARDIS key, I say don't fib to me. First broadcast on the 14th of March 1964 at 5.15pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman with guest stars Mark Eden as Marco Polo and Darren Nesbitt as Tigana. It was written by John Lucarotti, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by John Crockett. It was watched by 9.9 million viewers, and the audience appreciation was 60. In the cave of 500 eyes, Susan sees that they are being watched. And when Ian and Marco arrive, they find Barbara and slay her captor. Later, the schoolteacher tells Marco that she was following Tigana, but the warlord has been sowing seeds of doubt about the honesty of the travellers in the Venetian's mind as well. So Marco splits Susan and Ping Cho up, whilst Tigana meets Akamat to plan the deaths of his enemies. Ian swears to Marco that Tigana is a liar and that they are his friends, but then he himself gets caught by his own dishonesty when the Warlord reveals that the Doctor has a second TARDIS key. The When 9th of January 1964 Just before filming is due to begin on the serial Val Speyer Verity Lambert's secretary, collates a revised schedule in which the proposed director of this episode is moved from the production. Please note that Mr Richard Martin will not be directing episodes 4 and 6 of Serial D. Mr Waris Hussein will now direct all the episodes in this serial. Three days earlier, Martin has been assigned the two episodes of the two-part story set in the TARDIS, Serial C, to be made and transmitted immediately before Marco Polo, although he will ultimately direct only the first instalment. At some point between now and the 17th of February, newcomer John Crockett is brought on board to direct this middle instalment and give Waris Hussain a break from the exhausting work involved in journeying to Cathay. Crockett is the founder of the touring Compass Theatre Company, which has done notable work throughout the 1950s. 13th of January 1964. 
As part of the myriad of small cutaways provided by pre-filming, the shots of the tents in the forest are captured for use in this episode and the next at Ealing Studios on stage 3B. The tents in The Wall of Lies are featured just before the very final scene and cliffhanger. 14th of January 1964. Shots of the caravan in transit are captured today to be used in the montage work that goes underneath the diary and map inserts to be recorded later in the week. Although we have no photographic representation of this week's episode, there is evidence that the caravan and Mongol warriors used for montages representing the caravan's progress were featured in this episode, and it is in these diary sequences that they would have been used. 16th of January 1964. The diary and map inserts are all recorded today, including those for The Wall of Lies. 17th of February 1964. Rehearsals start for The Wall of Lies, with John Crockett at the helm. It's early days in his TV directing career. Three episodes of suspense have preceded this in 1963, one featuring Philip Voss, as it happens, as well as the 1961 one-off People of Nowhere, which he also designed. For Compass Theatre he designed too, and directed, wrote and acted, as well as founded. 20th of February. On the last day of rehearsals, six extra pages of dialogue are added to the underrunning script. Also today, Doctor Who gets its first Radio Times cover, with Hartnell featuring in a scene from the story alongside Eden and Nesbitt. This does not go down well with the rest of the regulars. 21st of February. Marco Polo is recorded at Studio D Lime Grove from 8.35pm to 9.45pm. The next day, the serial begins on BBC television, and so the series is currently operating just three weeks ahead. 23rd of February. William Russell, angered by the week's events, contacts his agent, T. Plunkett Green of Plunkett Green Limited, and he is not happy. We are going through a very trying time with that script and a great deal of last-minute work is having to be done. Last Thursday lunchtime, we added a six-minute scene and we are in the studio on Friday. Luckily, I had the major part and, as you know, I am a quick study, so all was well. It was not good enough in a four-day rehearsal schedule with a new and probably inexperienced director. We have had four new men in the past four weeks. This, by the way, is not quite true, but possibly refers to Richard Martin and Frank Cox both coming in for single episodes here and there, and, at a stretch, lighting man John Trier's moving on, replaced by Howard King from this episode of Marco Polo. But, you know, he is making a point and continues to do so. Their main trouble stems from the fact that they've written a story in which the four of us are virtually superfluous. This is confirmed by this week's Radio Times cover featuring two actors who have come in for a seven-week serial and Doctor Who, instead of the four of us. This can do me nothing but harm, and I would ask you to remonstrate in the strongest possible terms about this. I have myself told Verity Lambert, Mervyn Pringfield and David Whittaker that the story time excluded the four principles and that this should not happen again. I would like you to reinforce my point of view. My part must be commensurate with my position in the cast, which is number two. Obviously, I accept a great deal of change in the scripts, etc., doing a serial, but I do not accept that each week I have to fight for a fair chance of prominence. I hope you will make this crystal clear. 
The easily amused among you will note that Russell doles out a little bit of punishment in the form of what his character has to put up with in the show, with the Ian Chatterton, um, Chesterfield, uh, Charterson actor, referring to executive producer Mervyn Pinfield as Mervyn Pringfield, hoisting your employer by their own petard, perhaps. 12th of March. In the lead-up to transmission of the episode, the stage and television today dedicates its Place the Face column to Carol Ann Ford. Millions know her as Susan, the 15-year-old schoolgirl in Doctor Who. Actually, Carol Ann Ford is 22, married and the mother of a three-year-old daughter, Miranda. There is obviously a danger becoming too closely identified with a character in a television serial, particularly when that character is a child. After a rundown of her career to date, the article concludes by informing readers that Ford has ambitions to play Anne Frank, and Frank, of course, was 14, which is where we came in. This article is also the first indication that the regular lineup of the show can change, because all this being recognised as a child means that for Ford, much as she enjoys the variety which the serial offers, she will leave the cast in October when her year's contract expires, writes columnist Brian DeSalvo. So there you are, it's only March, but already one of the regulars is going to jump ship as soon as possible, and as soon as possible is not until October. A small section of this report was erroneously quoted in the previous edition of Too Much Information as being an article from the 12th of February. That episode has now been re-edited to remove this error and all copies burned forever. Apologies. 13th of March. There is much press about Doctor Who today, but none of it is about the episode about to be broadcast. Instead, the demand for the return of the Daleks, and the promise that they will, is what dominates the black and white sheets spewing forth from Fleet Street and beyond. 14th of March. The Wall of Lies is broadcast at a quarter past five. Its 9.9 million viewers are the most so far for the serial, but that increased number don't enjoy the episode as much as those who watched previous instalments, as the appreciation figure of 60 is the lowest so far. They're still very positive figures, though, consistent with recent adventures. Indeed, 9.9 and 60 are an exact match for the figures acquired by The Brink of Disaster, and well ahead of those for the series' first serial. 16th of March. If the press build-up for the episode was scant, at least it can be grateful for some feedback post-broadcast. For Alan Trevenick in the Sheffield Star, The Wall of Lies was a positive experience, even though he can't help gate-crashing Polo's party with those who have been dominating the programme's press coverage all week. The BBC have a winner with this Saturday serial, Doctor Who. I understand that the Daleks, the mechanical monsters on a planet in outer space killed off recently, return soon. That's good. But meantime, the action has plunged into the days of Marco Polo. The story of the time machine and its motley crew could have been taken straight from the pages of the comic I used to read in my school days. William Hartnell, remember him as the Sergeant Major in the first Army game series? Is mysterious Doctor Who. Meanwhile, the Lancashire Evening Telegraph reports that three schoolchildren, Michael Regan and Michael and Stephen Scaife, all aged 10, 
have made paper and cardboard models depicting scenes from Doctor Who, which are being exhibited in Colne Public Library. What's betting they were scenes from the Daleks and not Marco Polo? Though, sadly, we will never know, as too much information has discovered that all three enterprising young designers have all since died. 18th of March. Surely the Programme Review Board, convening at the BBC today, will be thrilled with this Rethian adventuring on the way to Cathay. No, even here, it's all about the Daleks, with it being noted that there has been a pleasing amount of press about the creatures. The outstanding photograph of Carol Ann Ford in the Sunday Mirror is also noted. Marco Polo? Nothing. 20th of March. There is a review of the current Doctor Who just before the broadcast of the next episode, which, due to its placing, seems to purport to be about the Wall of Lies, although the content betrays that, what with deadlines and availability, the writer in Catholic family newspaper The Universe might well be passing off at least some of his thoughts about the action of the week before as his thoughts on the latest instalment, as you will understand when you hear them. Watching Doctor Who with an 11-year-old, I began to understand the fascination this series has. He wriggled and whooped with delight at every fresh trick of suspense and at the same time got a lot of pleasure from his familiarity with the characters. In rapid asides, he identified them for my benefit. When we were left happily speculating as to how they would get out of the cave next week, he added that though he liked adventures into the past, like this, and thought Marco Polo terrific, he really preferred the future. I noticed that his father has now become an addict too. All in all, I should say that the BBC could let this run indefinitely. Well, clearly being a newspaper with God's ear did the show some long-term good. The subheading for this section on Doctor Who, by the way, is wholesome, and so the spectre of its violence and unpleasantness has not yet spooked the Catholic Church. God has also been answering Verity Lambert's prayers, as she is informed today that her request for a later time slot for Doctor Who has been granted, and that from episode six of this story onwards, the show will be going out 15 minutes later, at half past five. The what? It's another long episode, 24 minutes and 28 seconds. The cliffhanger for last week is a reenactment rather than played in from film. Current reconstructions of the story seem to use the same version of this scene, likely last week's ending, in both episodes. So this opening may well be a snippet of Doctor Who which doesn't actually exist anymore. Alas, too much information does not have access to all the existing sound recordings from the story in order to ascertain whether it was captured and preserved. Something to look out for when the existing tapes are studied in depth. It's certainly the reprise that will have begun this episode doesn't seem to be out there at the moment, so who knows what subtle differences there might have been to Carol Ann Ford's shock at seeing the moving eyes in the wall. When Marco berates Ian in the first scene, he originally was to say that it is dangerous to wander around unaccompanied, but this is changed to at night. Once again, elements, environment, both things relatively safe in 1963, but 
unknown and dangerous when reached by TARDIS, become part of the threat. Tigana, addressed here as Sir and This Man by the Doctor, neither of which are in the script and seem to be added by Hartnell to emphasise the Doctor's detached mistrust of the Warlord, begs the spirits of the Hashashin not to attack us in the script, but this is changed to them in the final version, a subtle change of emphasis, making the villain's apparent superstition to be bred from concern for his fellows, not for himself. The technicalities Ian describes regarding the eyes in the wall and the accessing of it are slightly different in a script which has much of its dialogue smoothed out or slightly altered by the cast. Ian also loses a bit of dialogue after the fight, telling the others that Barbara is okay, instead jumping straight into his reassurance of her. In his scene with Polo, Darren Nesbitt as Tigana makes a hash of his line, why not just send them on their way? but after a bit of a stumble and repetition, he is back on course. There's a nice little change of delivery in the final exchange between Marco and Tigana after Barbara has confronted the Mongol. His line to Marco was supposed to be, Mark well all that I have said to you, my friend. Mark it well. But instead, in the final version, he leaves it hanging before saying, my friend. And after a pause, Marco starts speaking to him, and then he uses my friend for emphasis before finishing the line as written. It's a change from the page that just alters the dynamic and delivery and shows the benefit of rehearsal. There is a recording break after Marco has yelled at Ping Cho when she has questioned his decision to separate her and Susan. The recording picks up with the telecine of Marco's journal entry being played in. A big chunk of dialogue due to follow this is cut during editing, and what remains of the scene has been rejigged towards the end in rehearsal. In a pleasing nod to the film inserts, Tigana was to begin the scene telling Ian that they will be leaving once Marco has finished his journal, which we've just seen and heard him writing. Upon Tigana's departure, Ian, the Doctor and Barbara were to discuss how much they hate him and his arrogance. Uncouth barbarian, says the Doctor, with Barbara observing that he despises them and Ian countering that he also despises Marco, who is supposed to be his friend. The Doctor has no sympathy for Marco, though, and the travellers confide in each other that various pieces of evidence point to Tigana's villainy. With the episode overrunning, though, ironically due to last-minute additions elsewhere, and it's actually quite a short script, it's only 19 pages, all of this is gone after an edit, after recording. So, we lose some John Lucarotti and gain a lot of script editor David Whittaker come curtain up. And sadly, the original scene as recorded does contain a glorious, now lost, Ian slash Doctor malapropism in which our hero refers to the teacher as Carterford. That's one that we don't hear in the series. On transmission, the scene starts with Ian and Barbara praising the Doctor for the speed of his work on the circuit, and what follows is an approximation of what is in the camera script, but there's obviously been some jiggery-pokery with the scene quite late in the day. Barbara's line about their imminent saying farewell to Marco Polo was originally Ian's. In her scene with Ping Cho, Carol Ann Ford fluffs her line about proving Tigana's guilt by erroneously inserting the phrase, find out into it. She stumbles, but is soon back on track. After this scene, 
there is another recording break. The second of Marco's diary entries is very short. As there are no telesnaps, we have no idea if this was mixed with any other footage, such as the moving caravan, or was just the plain, unsullied map. But extras Bill Brandon and John Lee are listed in the PSB paperwork, as is hand-double John Woodcock, and so the caravan-bearer characters must feature in at least one of the three map sequences, as must Marco's hand writing the diary. Presumably, the caravan stuff is as a montage mixed with the map footage as with the previous episodes. After Marco has allowed Tigana to go into town, which he does verbally in the episode, eliciting a thank you from the warlord, none of which is in the script, and Ping Cho comes to him with her proof of the Mongols' treachery, Marco's line about her bringing a very serious charge is not in the script and has been added. His riposte to her, it has to be said, rather flimsy evidence, isn't quite so strong in the script, with his calling her foolish and his double use of the word dare as in how dare you, is not in the Lucarotti version. It makes Marco much more affronted and angry, and Mark Eden's strong performance goes up a notch as a result. He actually, also, for our dashing hero, seems a bit mean at this point. The confrontational start to the Tigana and Akamat scene is not the same in the script either. The final version emphasises the schism between the two men and gets things going with a bit of spleen and conspiratorial tension. All of the dialogue between these two has had some tweakage, tightening it up in places, with Akamat losing the odd line or word, but gaining another one in the middle of what would otherwise be a longer monologue from Tigana. Just makes the whole thing more natural and, and more characterful. We have no photographs nor set plans for this episode, but it's safe to assume that they didn't erect the whole TARDIS interior for the short cutaways of the Doctor working on the circuit in the ship. The Doctor tells Polo that the key is not enough and that knowledge is required to open the TARDIS door. Indeed, he says, if the Venetian tries the key, it will destroy the lock, something the Doctor would much rather see happening than allow the, as he calls him, savage Marco access to the machine. This TARDIS lock melts if the wrong person tries to open the door defence is one the Doctor sensibly seems to remove subsequently in the series. At the end of the scene in which, from Marco's perspective, the Travellers are revealed to be duplicitous and Tigana honest, the Warlord gets an extra line emphasising this. His final utterance here, when he asks Marco if he is now convinced about who is truthful and who isn't, is a re-emphasis of this important dynamic that is not in the camera script and now ends the scene on a conclusive note for the character relationships which, right now, are not good for our heroes. There is a third and final recording break after Marco's final diary entry. In a nice change of business, Ian's anger at the beginning of the final batch of recorded scenes now has him throwing a plate across the room during his first line and breaking it. This means that when later he is supposed to break a plate in order to provide something to cut the tent with, it is actually already smashed. So he's using an available resource to facilitate his egress rather than creating a new one. The guard found dead at the end of the episode is played by Val Musetti, who will go on to do supporting artiste and stunt work on a number of stories between the Crusade, which is actually his only on-screen credit on the show as Valentino Musetti, 
and the Time Monster. Musetti also has a future as a professional motor racing driver. The Who Jimmy Gardner Jimmy Gardner, who plays Chenchu in The Wall of Lies, is instantly recognisable to many a viewer of TV and film during the period in which he worked as a character player. Bewhiskered, his bald pate bordered by Professor Kettlewell hair, he probably often found himself in the same casting sessions as that other startled-looking mass of her suitness, Sidney Bromley, and could reasonably have been peeved not to have been cast as Catweasel. He did nonetheless carve himself a niche on screen and on stage, where he excelled as a player of Shakespearean clowns. Edward Charles James Gardner was born in Newmarket, Cambridgeshire in August 1924. His father was a jockey who came second in the 1923 Derby, but was fired by Lord Derby for this perceived failure and moved to Ireland to ride there. And so this is where Jimmy grew up. He and his brother Vic were encouraged to become jockeys. Jimmy's slight frame was perfect for it, but even as a boy, he dreamed of the silver screen. Vic made a career on top of a horse, but Jimmy eventually made it into Warner Brothers Studio in Teddington, having been turned away at the gates, but then smuggling himself in as they opened to let in film star Margaret Lockwood's car. He crouched behind the far side of it and snuck in unnoticed, managing to talk his way then into a job painting scenery. Indeed, there wasn't a job too menial for this lover of film and theatre. He graduated to the clapperboard at Gainsborough Studios and spent some months picking out the wrappers and cigarette butts from the bins of returned Wall's chalk ices in order to save up enough money to go to Italy to work under the great theatre designer Edward Gordon Craig. When World War II broke out, luck showed itself to be a strange ally of Gardner, who, having become a sergeant in the RAF, ended up flying 30 missions as a rear gunner. The average survival rate for Halifax bomber crews over 30 missions was 16%. Life expectancy was two or three missions. Most crew were only expected to serve 15 missions, quite dangerous enough, and surviving those was deemed enough luck pushing to qualify for less dangerous duties. So after his 15, Jimmy became a dispatch rider, but found the motorbike way too perilous, and so back in the air he went for another 15 goes at outrunning the odds. And so he did. He was the recipient of the Distinguished Flying Medal for his action fighting off German warplanes over Germany on the 19th of February 1944 exactly 20 years before he was in the rehearsal rooms for The Wall of Lies. Sergeant Gardner said the citation displayed skillful directions and accurate fire which played a good part in frustrating the attacks and enabled his captain to return safely to base. He was described by his recommendation as a man of determination, fine fighting spirit and a strong sense of duty. During another mission, the crippled bomber had to be ditched into the Thames, but the crew, with not a penny between them, couldn't telephone for a pickup. Jimmy recalled that a good friend of his father had been the theatrical agent Charlie Tucker, so they all made their way to his house, where he lay on a fabulous spread before they phoned for a lift back to barracks. Having survived the war, Jimmy took advantage of his RAF gratuity to enrol at the Central School of Speech and Drama. His first work upon graduation 
was repertory and Barnstable. By 1949, he was with the Old Vic Company, carrying spears to the Richard III of Laurence Olivier. He became a valued company member and a man blessed, it seemed, with the luck that got him through World War II and beyond. He survived two shipwrecks and once, whilst liberating a Victorian fireplace from a demolition site, stood up a split second before a massive wooden beam crashed to the floor and landed in front of him, where he had been bending. He was also a committed marijuana smoker and a good friend of Bob Marley. He worked at the Royal Court in 1962 in Plays for England by John Osborne and for a while worked as Osborne's driver. That same year, he got four episodes of Stranger in the City. His only TV prior to that had been 1954's Tiger's Heart. And prior to Marco Polo, he did a couple of episodes of Moonstrike and one of Boyd QC. After Marco Polo, well, he was just one of those faces. A recognisable character player in supporting roles, often as tramps, porters, servants or factotums. Telefantasy work included Man in a Suitcase, The Day of Execution, 1967, The Avengers, False Witness, 1968, and The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, 1992. He was Mr Beaver in 1967's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Robespierre in 1969's The Elusive Pimpernel, and he had short stints in both Emmerdale and Coronation Street, as well as guesting in every popular drama from United in 1966 to Doc Martin in 2004. Oh, and he popped back into the Doctor Who universe as Idmon, father of Edas, in Underworld in 1978. His big screen work included The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, 1964, Ten Reddington Place, 1971, Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy, 1972, The Company of Wolves, 1984, and box office smash Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, 1991. Oh, and of course, Ernie the Bus Driver in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban in 2005. His final movie role, also in 2005, was in Juice Bigelow, European Gigolo, with Rob Schneider. He never fully stepped away from the boards, though. He was a gem of nastiness, The Guardian, in Roy Minton's Come Sunday at the Fortune Theatre in 1968, and the following year went to the expense of taking out an advert in theatrical newspaper The Stage simply to wish everyone a happy, happy, groovy, high-swinging Christmas and a successful new year. He spent ten years working at the Royal Shakespeare Company, playing those clowns that, well, look at him, he was born to play. Snug the Joiner in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Old Gobbo in The Merchant of Venice, Virgies in Much Ado About Nothing, the first gravedigger in Hamlet. Oh, and not just any old Hamlet, but the Hamlet of Mark Rylance. Rylance deemed his pal Gardner's performance in this most key of Shakespearean clowns as definitive. His specialism in this field also led to him being cast as the clown, the asp seller, in the BBC Shakespeare production of Antony and Cleopatra in 1981, directed by Jonathan Miller. He also displayed his versatility by playing five different roles in the RSC's acclaimed and sprawling Nicholas Nickleby, adapted by David Edgar. After a season at The Globe in the late 1990s, in Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra, it was in Julius Caesar again at the Barbican Theatre with Rafe Fiennes and Simon Russell Beale that he did his last stage work 
in 2005. Jimmy Gardner, who is not to be confused with the writer of the same name who died in December of the same year, died on the 3rd of May 2010, aged 85. Mark Rylance later unveiled a plaque to Gardner on the green in Marlborough, which remembers him as actor and war hero. I met Jimmy when I was 22 and he had a most profound effect on me as he did on most people who met him, said Rylance. I don't know if it was his experiences in the Second World War, but I've never met a man who loved life more. Philip Voss Marco Polo was a very early foray into television for Philip Voss, who spent many years as a reliable, supporting character man before, in his later years, blossoming to become one of the leading classical actors on the British stage. Born on the 20th of August 1936 in Leicester, the son of a pharmacist, he was brought up in Wollaston near Nottingham, where he was schooled and first dabbled in amateur dramatics. He spent his national service with the RAF and then enrolled at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, RADA, with Christopher Benjamin, later of Inferno, The Talons of Wang Chiang and The Unicorn and the Wasp, The Time Monster's Neville Barber, Ian Cullen, soon to be in The Aztecs, Morgan Shepherd from The Impossible Astronaut, and Hugh Futcher from The Sea Devils, amongst his contemporaries when he graduated in 1958. He started in the classics immediately, in an Arts Council tour of Romeo and Juliet, in conjunction with Peter Ustinov's Romanoff and Juliet, and soon was in rep in Colchester, with Arthur Cox, with whom he would reunite when Voss returned to Doctor Who as the ill-fated Warhead in episode one of The Dominators. Voss's television career began in 1962 with a small role in an episode of Top Secret and indeed small roles, including his two Doctor Whos, were his lot for quite some time. Of Marco Polo, he recalled that It was torture on many levels. I was very young and I had no money. I could hardly afford to eat. And I had on this dark Mongol wig, but worst of all, they had gauze things attached to my temples, pulled round and tied behind my head, and I had spent the whole time in this studio not being fed and in agony with this particular makeup. After the agony of Marco Polo, he was in Time in Advance, a 1965 episode of Out of the Unknown, The Troubleshooters, 1970, and Elizabeth R., 1971. His films over the years included Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, 1974, Octopussy, 1983, Clockwise, 1986, and Four Weddings and a Funeral, in which he was the bride's father at Wedding One. His rich, expressive voice and perfect but unforced diction served him well for vocal work, and he was a regular actor on radio, including a stint as part of the BBC Radio Rep, and he took part in Brian Sibley's epic and admired Lord of the Rings as the imposing Lord of the Nazgul in 1981 as part of an all-star cast that included Ian Holm, Michael Horden and Bill Nye. But it was on stage that he ascended, slowly but surely, to become one of the most highly regarded players of his time and used by most of the country's leading directors for all of the major UK theatre companies and he proved an exemplar in the classics. He attributed his move from solid and reliable character player to purveyor of iconic roles to his time, a decade in all, 
under director Mike Alfreds at Shared Experience Theatre Company, who taught him to rip up the rulebook and totally redefine his approach to his craft. His 1981 performance as the sardonic Dr Dawn in Chekhov's The Seagull was described as the best since George Devine. He moved with Alfreds to the National Theatre in 1987 and then enjoyed a golden period at the Royal Shakespeare Company in the 1990s, giving an object lesson in verse speaking, according to the Daily Telegraph, for one of his many turns. He was a Shylock in The Merchant of Venice who was grave and weighty, according to critic Michael Coveney, Malvolio in Twelfth Night, and on tour, a shrewd old fox, Coveney again, of a Prospero in The Tempest. Reviewing his Sir Epicure Mammon in Sam Mendes's production of The Alchemist, with a cast that included David Bradley, Guy Henry and Jonathan Hyde, The Guardian's highly regarded reviewer Michael Billington gushed that The prime performance of the evening is Philip Voss's Mammon, a rouged epicene epicure who emits little gasps of ecstasy as he imagines himself walking naked between my succubi. Mr Voss combines voluptuous frenzy with the ability to make every syllable gleam like polished marble. Reviews like that, plus leading major roles in some of the most important plays of the canon by our leading classical companies, and for most of our acclaimed directors, Mendes, Adrian Noble, Philo Lloyd, well, not bad for a hungry Mongol from Studio D. As his stage stature increased, so did the availability of better TV roles, as well as decent guest roles, often as members of the judiciary or aristocracy in many a drama. He was a regular opposite Paul McGann in Fish, 2000, and in his last TV role, a straight offer when he'd pretty much opted to retire to tend to his garden as Ian McKellen's waspish brother in the sitcom Vicious. That garden he shared with his long-term partner, the writer John Peacock, with whom he had settled in the 1970s and sealed a civil partnership in 2006. John died in 2017, and whilst undergoing treatment for cancer in 2020, Philip contracted Covid and died from related complications of both on November the 13th of that year, aged 84. And so ends another episode of Doctor Who. A mysterious one within a mysterious one. John Crockett, the director, was never interviewed. Not many people remember him well, and certainly not those who worked on this story, and no one kept the telesnaps from the wall of lies. So it's perhaps the least tangible of the lost episodes of Marco Polo. Had it existed, we'd be able to compare the styles of its two directors, but instead, all we can do is guess, probably incorrectly, what this one looked like. But of course, because we know what the actors and costumes and sets look like, it's a mystery shrouded within the familiar. It's certainly admirable in its character dynamics to garner an Iago-like figure at Marco's side, using the truth to paint the travellers as dishonest and being quite transparent about his opinions of them whilst hiding the greater lie of his own treacherous ambitions beneath his honest man facade. Ian, conversely, presents as honest and yet the travellers are hiding something fundamental from Marco. And so, who should he trust? His faith in Tigana at this juncture does not seem unreasonable. Oh, and it is Tigana and Marco, as it happens, who do what the Radio Times cover released the week 
that this episode is made, subtly tells us. During their discussion, it is they who declare the Doctor to be the leader of the group. Yeah, Ian may get the heroic fisticuffs, but the old man is in charge. That's why the show bears his name, and not Ian's. Marco's exchange with Ian, in which the Traveller explains why he trusts the smooth-talking, bearded villain over the mysterious Travellers, just about gets the story away with an element which might have the viewers occasionally yelling at the screen. The writer, or is it the script editor, cleverly has Marco ask us, well, Ian, to put ourselves in his shoes. And to him, the Travellers aren't the heroes of an enjoyable space-time show. They are oddballs who have turned up out of nowhere. So yeah, fair enough. Even if Tigana is doing very little to hide his unpleasantness, well, these are unpleasant times. And, of course, just after Ian has urged Marco to believe him, to trust the travellers, he lies about the Doctor being in the ship, and it is Tigana who reveals the truth, which ensnares the time travellers in a trap of their own words. Or, ahaha, in a wall of lies. Oh, and are you now convinced which of us makes trouble? Doctor Who, The Wall of Lies. Featured Xenia Merton as Ping Cho, Jimmy Gardner as Chen Chu, and Philip Voss as Ackermat. The title music was by Ron Grainer and BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The incidental music was by Tristram Carey. The story editor was David Whittaker. The designer was Barry Newbury. And the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, the Mongols attack and are beaten away by a defensive manoeuvre constructed out of Rethian educational content. And then a messenger arrives with some plot information and a bag full of historical tuition of his own. And Tigana, well, he wants to teach everybody a lesson. That's next time on Doctor Who, Too Much Information. Next episode, Rider from Shang Tu, or Everybody Was Bamboo Fighting. Too Much Information, The Wall of Lies, was written and presented by me, Toby Hado. Additional voice work was from Shirley Houston. And great thanks are owed to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, Simon Guerrier, Andrew Hodson, Graham Kibble-White, Reese Williams, and the late Philip Voss. The series consultant is Richard Bignall, and the music has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information, that is for now exclusive to patrons, who also qualify for bonus material, early releases and other exclusives, as well as pictures of my dog. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast, so if you want to hear podcaster extraordinaire Siobhan Galichon on The Three Doctors, or co-writer of the amazing Doctor Who book The Writer's Tale, podcaster and presenter Benjamin Cook on survival, then head to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. 
References. Most of the information herein, as with every too much information, comes from going back to source and sifting through the original scripts and paperwork which have been shared from various sources. You know who you are, and thank you. This paperwork has recently been the subject of much collation by the diligent Simon Gerrier, who is also quick to reply when asked where certain bits might be, and David Brunt's been having a go too. Doctor Who research owes both men a lot. I've consulted various reference works for this podcast, Doctor Who A Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, with contributions from Jonathan Morris, Alistair McGowan and Richard Atkinson, and much of it, of course, based on those fantastic archives features by Andrew Pixley. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Complete History of Time Travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference, and I subscribe to the British newspaper archive, Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are vital resources, but also places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, so proceed with caution. How Stammers and Walkers, The Sixties and The First Doctor Handbook are both excellent and uncovered much of what we now take for granted, ditto J. Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years. Jimmy Gardner has been written about by both Nick Fogg of The Guardian and Mark Rylance in The Independent, and I'm grateful to both. Michael Coveney wrote a nice obituary for Philip Voss, whom I also had the pleasure of interviewing on a couple of occasions, and what a charming man he was. I walk in the shadows of giants, albeit giants who spend a lot of time in darkened rooms. I would like to thank the patrons who make these podcasts possible. They include Stephen Moffat, Peter Adamson, John Arnold, Kevin Ashelford, Luke Adkins, James Bell, David Bickley, Will Brooks, Rick Byatt, Gary Byrne, Robin Bland, Alex Caffajoglu, Paul Carnahan, Paul Carrington, Andy Case, John Curley, Mark Dakin, John Ellidge, Gary Gillett, Paul Goodridge, James Gould, Lisa C. Greco, David Green, Fraser Gregory, Paul Gregory, Dave Hoskin, Richie Howarth, Andrew Jordan, Christopher Joyce, Jess Jerkovic, Ashley Knight, Clive Lewis, Guy Lambert, James Lark, David Matthewman, Jason Mayo, John McClay, Rossa McPhillips, Stuart Mitchell, Nathan Moore, Jonathan Molyneux, Matthew Newton, Graham Knott, Dave Owen, Melvin Pena, Keith Peary, Jonathan Potter, Kevin Parker, Scott Pride, Dylan Reese, John Rivers, Mark Sandham, Jim Sangster, David Shepherdson, Stephen, Neil Tate, Nick Temple, Sabrina Tirabassi, Apollo C. Vermouth, Gary Wales, Adam Westwood, Rich Wiggins, Michael Williams, Andrew Willis, Andrew Wilson, Sidney Wilson, Stephen White, and Gareth McLean. So yes, just a reminder, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. It's a monthly subscription for as little as £3 a month. You get 10% off if you booked for a year in one go. That's on any tier. The lowest tier is £3 a month, at which most things are available. There are a few sort of little trinkets uh, as the tiers increase, including getting your name mentioned in the credits a bit more often. But as I say, I don't I really feel comfortable denying people things. So most stuff is available at £3. It's a kind of pay-what-you-can-afford model. I mean, you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. But it's the way we creatives seem to do things now. 
most stuff is available free at the point of contact and uh, it's up to you whether you pay for it or not i totally understand if you can't times are tough financially for everyone i know and i am just glad that this is of interest to some of you uh and if it is of interest to you please carry on listening please spread the word if you yeah if you can't afford any sort of payment even a one-off which you can do at ko-fi.com forward slash toby haydock we just buy me a metaphorical coffee occasionally uh what costs you nothing is to tell your friends to say nice things in cyberspace and particularly to go to itunes podbean spotify wherever you digest your podcasts and give these five stars Five-star reviews really help. They creep us up the algorithms. And to leave a few nice lines of review as well, just to give passing punters an idea of what it is you get for these podcasts. And if you like them, those kind words really help. And they they warm my little heart as well, which occasionally flutters with insecurity. Um, So look, any way that you can support these, just the art of listening is supportive enough. But anything else that you could give your time to, I would be very grateful for. Thank you so much. And if you like what I do, you can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydock, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. These podcasts have their own feed at Haydock Podcasts. And I run a comedy club in Manchester called XS Malarkey. That's X, that's S, that's Malarkey, M-A-L-A-R-K-E-Y, which has been going for over 25 years in Manchester. It's just won another award, Best Independent Club. Uh, It's run pretty much like this is voluntarily with a lot of heart and gusto and and you know not many bells and whistles <laughs> it's it's pure of art but not not fancy of package and um yeah that's what i put on that's what i put on plenty of fish good of heart but not fancy of package but uh, if that's your style and you're in manchester and you fancy a laugh or you fancy supporting independent comedy we get all the best acts in the country who just like playing the gig because we don't let in stag do's hen do's office parties that sort of thing so support live comedy excess malarkey comedy club there's also a twitch stream uh, uh on uh, yeah it's twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey and uh, yeah just google us find out about us uh, it's uh, it's my other thing that i do for love not money i'm i must one day start doing something for money it would be nice to have a pension as i approach pension age i'm gonna die with my boots on aren't i uh well uh hopefully not before i've got to cathay which uh, my journey still has three installments to go oh it's been a long one this hasn't it but i've already found out lots of interesting things about one of the guest stars of rider from shang too about whom prior to this endeavor I knew absolutely nothing, and I'm pretty confident if I didn't know, not many other people did either. So hurrah for that, Um, and that's coming next time on Too Much Information.